I'm Rachel Perkins, and you're listening to the Nordic Nation podcast from Faster Skier. In this episode, we have U.S. Ski and Snowboard Cross-Country Program Director Chris Grover on to discuss the tumultuous last two years of navigating the pandemic, including the many ways in which it created strain for the team, particularly as the Omicron variant surged during the months leading into the 2022 Beijing Olympics. It's been a hard two years, but this conversation extends well beyond the impacts of the pandemic. We also discuss equal distance racing, the 2022-23 roster for the U.S. ski team, which features a number of talented young men newly named to the team, team selections and criteria for the World Cup and World Championships, and new gender equity initiatives proposed to the FIS by U.S. Ski and Snowboard, which incentivizes nations to invest in developing women ski technicians and utilizing them at the World Cup events. This proposal was recently accepted by the FIS Cross Country Committee, and should it be officially accepted at FIS Council meetings, it would mean a new set of course fibs which would be available beginning next season only to female techs. Therefore, a country could increase the size of its service staff by investing in the development of women techs and utilizing these women at World Cups. There's a lot to discuss, so we'll cut to the chase after a quick note from this episode's sponsor, Boulder Nordic Sport. Boulder Nordic Sport is the industry-leading resource for cross-country ski equipment, waxing, stone grinding, and hand-selected skis. Whether you're looking to tour at a local park, finish your 15th Berkey in style, or are aiming for the next Olympic team, Boulder Nordic Sport's passionate staff can help you get the perfect gear for your cross-country skiing experience. Visit bouldernordic.com to shop one of the biggest selections of ski gear in the country, or check out their extensive library of waxing how-tos on YouTube. For taking the time to do this um i know it's it sounds like it's been a pretty yeah busy busy spring and um there's definitely a lot going on at kind of all all levels um right now so yeah. it's great to have have the chance to talk so i, I believe you started with usc usc and snowboard in 1989 is that right yeah. coming in kind of as a development coach so um can you talk through just kind of the evolution of your role and, and just your time um your time with USG and snowboard over the last more than 20 years yeah um yeah I did start in 99 and actually my first year first year was really um in those years obviously we we're getting ready for the Salt Lake Olympics that was the focus I moved to Heber City um to be close to close to what was happening with the Olympics. Um, we were doing a lot of training at Soldier Hollow. My first year on the team was actually um, as an assistant World Cup coach um, and technician um, at that time. Then in the following several years, we ended up with more development athletes than we had actual World Cup athletes. So I switched over to assisting Miles Minson at that time on the development side for several years um, leading into the games. Um, so those were those were really kind of experiential years for me, um, learning a lot both internationally with World Cup level and kind of on the de on the development side as well. Um, after 2002, I became the the head development coach, um, which was a fun several years. We had athletes like Keegan Randall and Andy Newell were juniors at that time and and part of that program. Um, then I actually stopped working for the ski team for two years, came back to Sun Valley. Um, we started what um, was then called the Olympic Development Team, which is now called the Gold Team. Uh, Rick, and I, Rick and I started that at that time. Um, so kind of got the senior club program going then. Um, but in 2006, Pete Bordenberg 
um, convinced me to come back to the ski team. I spent four years as the sprint coach um, leading into the Vancouver games in 2010 um, and then became the head coach from 2010 to 2020. Um, and then at some point during that tenure, um, we'd had a, a Nordic program director. John Farrow was the last one of them. I can't remember what year he stopped somewhere prior to 2020. Um, and we went a few years without having a Nordic director per se. Um, Dave Jarrett on the Nordic combined side, just kind of assumed some of those responsibilities. And I assumed him on the cross country side. Um, and then a few years ago, two or three now, um, I became the Nordic director, actually not Nordic director, sorry, cross country director. And that coincided also with, with Nordic combined and jumping really moving into their own kind of, you know, uh, uh, governing body or, um, with USANS kind of in conjunction with US ski and snowboard. So that's a little bit, a little bit of the, um, the, the background, but at this, you know, so I've done a little bit of everything, every role potentially kind of, there was a stint in there where I was the men's coach as well as the head coach as well. Back when we had more of a men's and women's structure, I've kind of done almost every role within the ski team, but you know, we're so small that actually everybody does everything. So the titles don't mean so much. <laughs> everybody, everybody has plenty of hats. Plenty exactly. Hats to go around. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, you know, when you're program director, some, sometimes you're, you are, uh, you're also a test pilot and, you know, you're running lots of glide and you're cleaning some cluster afterwards. Although that, although I got to say, our guys don't let me touch too many skis anymore uh, for, for good reason. <laughs> and Getting into kind of just, you know, talking through, I think it's been a couple of years um, since we've had you on this podcast, at least. Um, and it's been, you know, a pretty, I think, mentally and, and physically draining uh, last couple of years for a number of reasons for everybody. But I imagine, especially when you're, um, you know, leading an international program, you've got an Olympic cycle, um, we're living through a pandemic and, and kind of navigating constant changes in that realm. Um, this year at the end of the season having kind of geopolitical tensions um really rising and, and creating some complications um I'm hoping you can kind of talk through that from the U.S. ski team leadership perspective in particular in terms of you know I think we we kind of see the more obvious hurdles and challenges that you guys are facing and um and you know how how things are going um but really from kind of a superficial level I think and so from kind of that behind the scenes, navigating some of these challenges, like what were some of the, uh, what were some of the big, big hurdles that you guys were trying to navigate? And as you kind of look back over the last couple of years of, of weathering that storm, um, what are some of the factors maybe that have enabled the team to be as successful as it was in, in navigating through these challenges? Yeah. So oof, it's definitely like a, a complex question. Um, first of all, just from a general overview side, I'd say like, yes, the last two and a half years, you know, certainly since the since the cancellation of the Quebec and Minneapolis and Canmore World Cups that we had at the end of the season several years ago, which were heartbreaking for, you know, we were right on the verge of, of having, as you know, a World Cup for the first time in the United States in 19 years. Um, we had this really robust schedule. We had a huge nations group. We had all these athletes nominated and physically in Quebec city, actually at the time, 
um, when those cancellations happened. So it was just such a deflating way to to end that year and so heartbreaking for the organizers in, in Minneapolis and people like Jesse and everyone in that community that had put so much time and money and heart and effort into into those races so that was that was a yeah that was tough and then we obviously like we 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 went into a preparation season where nobody was vaccinated and we as we moved through the season we basically canceled every single training camp that we had planned for that season and our our calculus at the time was simply that with everyone unvaccinated, it was just not worth pe- putting people on airplanes to come to a training camp and then to go into a training camp environment that was extremely restrictive in terms of the quarantines that had to be adhered to and the separation, not only in lodging and meals and transport and at training and every aspect of the camps. We just said, this is not worth it. And also, if we get one athlete sick and it really does some damage to their lungs and we don't know at this, at this time what COVID can do to people but it seems serious and people are dying of this already. It's just not worth, it's not worth it. And so the, 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 at the end of the day, that first, that first year, we said, we'll not run any training camps. The only time we will travel is for comp is for high level competition. So that kind of, that was our solution to that. And, and I think it was interesting. We saw everyone train at home for a long time and come into the season with quite high fitness. And we, you know, we came away with this amazing realization that, yeah, if you cut out some travel on what would normally be off days, rest days from training, and you reduce your sponsor obligations and you reduce your community engagement obligations and you reduce your team engagements, that all of a sudden you can get yourself in quite good fitness. Um, of course, on the caveat to that and the other side of that coin is that we were losing on snow time. We were losing the team building and culture building aspects of, of the program. Um, we were losing kind of the support we're not losing, but compromising some of the support mechanisms that were surrounding the athletes in terms of general strength preparation or sports psychology, perhaps, or athlete career and education services. Although lots of these things could be done via zoom or online, but obviously there were places where we were missing, missing something. So that, you know, that's getting into a little bit of specifics, you know, the last two years, on the world cup, I would say have for sure been the hardest two years of my career, um, hands down And last year being the Omicron plus Beijing Olympics was by far the hardest thing that I've ever had to, to deal with professionally. And it was, it was dispiriting, frankly. I mean, it's, um, the last two years haven't been that much fun for the people that, that have been involved. And I feel particularly bad for the athletes, um, specifically those who have actually um, just arrived on the World Cup in the last several years and don't know it to be um, nearly as fun as it actually can be um, under normal circumstances. Um, we've had so much isolation over the last, you know, both like, you know, within, within the team structure, athletes to staff, athletes to athlete, um, athletes to their um, colleagues and other teams. Normally we would do a lot more with other teams and other programs, um, throughout the year and during the winter as well. So it's been, it's been really challenging this year, going into the Olympics in particular was incredibly stressful. Um, not only for, for all the athletes, but for all the staff, I mean, the arrival of Omicron and, and seeing how, um, transmissible it was in particular, 
And that if I think back, I want to say that was kind of like six weeks or so prior to when teams were beginning to travel to Beijing. And immediately Omicron started to make its way through other U.S. ski and snowboard disciplines at that time. And you can obviously see that it was happening in social media. And we had quite famous athletes and, you know, favorites for Beijing that were actually starting to get sick. And the Chinese had such stringent protocols for getting into the games. Um, at one point you had to, if you'd had Omicron, you had to um, show proof of recovery. And then I believe you had to have four different PCR tests spread out over something like 10 business days um, prior to being able to get on an airplane to go to China. And we were incredibly concerned that as the games got closer, that um, any number of our athletes, of the cross-country athletes, would get it and it would prevent them from going to the Olympics. Um, and by the time that they were able, and obviously there were many athletes for whom it took a long time to test negative, um, you know, in that process. So we were really worried that 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 was going to happen to key athletes and to key and to key staff as well. So we went into uh, we went into lockdown mode for many weeks prior to the Olympics, um, and we literally were at one point were testing every single day for weeks. Um, a combination of PCR tests on maybe every third or fourth day with antigen tests on the, on every, every day in between and, um, massive isolation, very strict protocols for like how somebody could enter the group, all that sort of thing. Um, so it was an incredible relief to get everybody to, um, Beijing healthy and just ready to compete. That was, I feel like that was the biggest victory of the Olympics was just getting people there. They're healthy, they're ready to compete, and then keeping them healthy during the games as well. Um, so every year, the last two years at the end of the year, I've basically said to myself, I can never do that again, but I probably will be doing that again <laughs> as, as it happens. <laughs> but it's been, it's been really hard on, I, I really feel bad. It's the kind of thing that will shorten people's careers for sure, because no, nobody is, having, is, 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 get, is finding the joy in world cup racing the way that it should be normally found. Yeah. And I know that that kind of comes with a lot of financial burden for the program too, right. In terms of, um, just the cost of that amount of testing. And, um, I imagine kind of being able to spread people out over, I think with that camp, the pre-Olympic camp, right. There may be more separate, smaller, separate pods, uh, which means more lodging potentially than like a big group lodging um, where you might be able to, you know, as, as maybe in a previous Olympic cycle, you might be able to have more kind of community style meals or take advantage of those kinds of things. And, and I imagine there's a lot there too, right. That adds, yeah. adds complexity to the planning and, and adds expenses that, um, maybe ideally would be put towards other things. <laughs> yeah. Massive spending, massive spending was required, um, on the, on the testing side, as you say, and also like on the, yes, more single rooms, more spreading people out, um, into separate accommodations at some points. Um, so it was, yeah, more, <laughs> more van trips, every, everything else like that you can possibly imagine. Um, and one challenge for us, frankly, too, has been the cost of the testing. And that's something that I've been raising with the FIS because individual organizers are, are tasked with organizing, um, 
organizing PCR testing for their different venues. And they've contracted them out to often for-profit companies, it seems. Um, and we're getting charged some exorbitant um, testing prices or costs um, on the World Cup, sometimes as high as almost like 200 euros for a PCR test for one person, which is absolutely ridiculous at this point in the pandemic when we have the technology to test for cheaper, um, much cheaper than that. So it's something that I've asked, asked um, the FIS pros to, to work on uh, because it is, it's breaking the back of all the teams. That's, that's for sure. It's um, on the, I know that there are still plenty of, of precautions um, for this camp, but you're just coming out of uh, Ben camp. And um, as you mentioned that, that first summer of the pandemic, all training camps were, were shut down. And I think um, it sort of seems like a, a progressive return towards a normal, uh, normal camp schedule for the team. Um, so can you talk about, you know, maybe some that camp in terms of, you know, just what importance that kind of camp serves, um, particularly in on snow camp. Um, and also just, you know, maybe highlights of that camp and, and what else is kind of in the works for the summer in terms of the program. Yeah, definitely. No, it was, it, we, we are, we are still adhering to quite a few protocols at camp. We did have everyone PCR test prior to coming to camp. We actually had everyone mask fully in every airport, airplane, public space, communal transport. Um, the only places that we were taking off masks were actually in, in our various lodging um, at Ben Camp. We did not, in, we, we often try to do something in, with, in conjunction with the community in Bend, some sort of community celebration and allow you know, athletes to meet kids and community members. We did not do that because we were worried about this upsurge with the BA2 variant. Um, also, there just seemed to be a ton of flu and colds going around this spring that we wanted to try to keep people healthy from. So that was a loss for sure, not to be able to really engage with the community in that way. Um, but we, we were also masking in vans. We were testing during the camp. Um, and knock on wood so far, we've been able to kind of like keep people healthy through that process. But we were, we were definitely concerned about, about COVID, you know, getting into our camp environment here. We really tried to, to bubble. Um, the camp was really fantastic. I mean, much, much thanks um, to everyone at Mount Bachelor, Sue Foster at Mount Bachelor Nordic in particular. Um, but everyone up there, we really lucked out. Um, our camp was a week earlier than it normally would be. Uh, because of Jesse Diggins' wedding um, was one big reason. But we were also concerned about snowpack. And at the end of March, the snowpack at Mount Bachelor did not look good. But they had a massive April, as everyone knows. And so we were greeted upon arrival by six feet of packed snow on the trails, 40 kilometers of scroom skiing every day, midwinter conditions, hard wax. It was it was amazing. It definitely transformed towards the second week of the camp, but we had really productive um, skiing, as much skiing as anybody wanted to get in. Um, a lot of very productive technique sessions. So it was it was um, it was a, a fantastic camp, and I think people came away from it feeling like they'd really got a lot done. We do have three athletes that are still there. Actually, Rosie, Sophia, and Novi are all still on snow this week. They're taking advantage of even a little bit more. A little bit more skiing. Um, as we move into the summer, we now have a pretty good break where everybody's going to be at home for kind of the first part of the base preparation. 
um, over the next few weeks. Um, and actually through, yeah, pretty much through June and July. Um, the majority of us are going to go to um, Torsby, Sweden and get in the tunnel in August for about a week. Um, we're still putting together the details on that. And then we're going to move up to Trondheim and participate in the Toppy Dretzbeka roller ski race um, series up there. So our next camp is really kind of a hybrid between on snow in Sweden for a week and um, roller ski racing in Norway for a week which, you know, both of those things we've done for a while or done, you know, several times in the past, but it's been a while, especially on Torsby. It's been a few years since we've been there. Um, and then I think it's been three or four years since we've been to Toppy Dretz, Becca, but that's always, Toppy Dretz is always a really great experience where you kind of, you know, a younger athlete in particular can really like learn from a technical and training and, and, um, race tactic kind of perspective, like get that, get that touch point that you don't usually get in North America over the preparation period by being around the best skiers in the world, um, and getting to go head, head to head with them in a number of formats over a number of days. So that's kind of the next thing for us. We may send a couple of the A team athletes in particular, Jesse and Julia to the Southern hemisphere, um, to get on snow. New Zealand is opened back up this year. Um, but the lodging at the snow farm is actually not opening, uh, opening up this year. So trying to figure out some things there, but it's a little bit of a challenge. It's not easy right now to, to do that. Um, and then we have a break in September and then everyone comes to park city for our kind of traditional dry land two week camp in park city, where not only are we getting a little altitude, uh, block in and doing some roller ski racing at soldier hollow, but we're also kind of taking care of all those little things that we need to take care of um, at the center of excellence with the rest of the U.S. ski and snowboard staff prior to leaving for World Cup. Looking back, I imagine there's there's a some extent there's probably some four-year planning um, that happens at at kind of the leadership level, um, and I coming from I, I came from a teaching background and. Um, one of the things that I, I kind of took away from that was this idea of like a keep, scrap, adapt model of reflecting over, you know, what what worked, um, what didn't work, what is kind of working but needs to be um, adjusted moving forward. And I'm wondering if uh, what kinds of things fall into those categories in terms of as, you know, as the U.S. ski and snowboard leadership kind of looks back over the last four years with the cross-country program um, and looking ahead to the next four years. Like, what are some things that you you guys have been working on that seem like they've been going really well? What maybe is kind of getting fine-tuned and what are, if anything, are there things that are kind of being left behind or have been left behind um, as you kind of work work forward for the next next game cycle? Yeah, first of all, I guess I'd back up and I'd say, the last two years we've been in a bit of survival mode, um, during the pandemic. Um, so much of the time that we actually would have spent normally like focusing on strategies, um, performance strategies have actually had to switch gear and be switch gears and be dedicated to keeping people healthy and COVID free. Um, and, so like we've lost, I think everybody in the world has probably lost a little bit of ground in terms of kind of being able to think about what are the strategies that are really going to impact performance versus how do we just get through another, how do we get through another season and keep people healthy? Um, 
in this process. So that's a little bit of a challenge. You know, when we lost, when we decided not to do training camps for a whole preparation period, we lost a kind of a quite a bit of like time to experiment with different things, techniques, technologies, training planning, strategy. Um, so that was a, it was definitely a bit of a loss. You know, we had pretty intricate plans on what we wanted to do, especially in the two years leading into the Beijing Olympics in the two preparation years, specifically around altitude, pacing, technique, um, and lost a lot of that. We were able to do some of it. One of the takeaways or one of the things that I think we really felt like was valuable time spent the last several years and we want to continue going forward is on this pacing project that we've been doing where we basically are trying to provide more um, focus to threshold training sessions. And um, specifically that's been built around kind of a 5K, 5K increments. And we did two sessions like that in this past camp at Mount Bachelor. So we did, um, you know, we did three or four times 5K classic one week and three or four times 5K skating the next week. And athletes primarily ski by themselves. They time themselves. They work on different techniques. Um, they work on different focus, different, you know, energy expenditure and different terrain and, and try to keep track of like where they're going faster, where they're going slower, where they're getting out of their intended heart rate zone, where they're kind of in that zone um, and what they can learn. And I think like, we really like that process because in the past, I think so often threshold work in particular has kind of been brain dead type work where you have a target target heart rate zone and you're just out there trying to stay in that zone for whatever it is, eight minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, um, but without real purpose. And so we really like the purpose this brings. It, it brings great discussion out after each workout about the pacing, but also which techniques were used. And so athletes begin to kind of like learn in a semi-race mode, what techniques work, which best in which conditions um, and in which terrain. Um, so that's one thing we really want to really want to continue forward with. Um, from an altitude perspective, we feel like our altitude preparation for Beijing went probably as well as possible. Um, we felt like we were prepared from that side. The team had been at altitude quite a bit in the last year, including several weeks in, in Lavinio immediately prior to the games. Um, but now as we turn our attention to the next quad, we see predominantly lower altitude venues. Planitza, I believe, is under 3,000 feet. Trondheim is basically at sea level in 2025. And then Val di Fiamme should be the cross-country venue for, for the 2026 Olympics, and that's closer to 3,000 feet. So these are lower altitudes. So one thing that we're trying to figure out right now is what's the right balance of altitude versus not altitude to prepare to, to prepare for these lower altitude events. Um, at the same time, like we know that championship level courses are hard, generally very difficult, big hills, long hills, tough a climbs in them. And so getting a boost of altitude that can help with oxygen carrying capacity going into a championships is not a bad idea, but there's also the trade-off of having to be more careful at altitude with your training and your recovery and not being able to train quite as hard potentially at altitude. And that's also individual for every athlete. Some athletes respond obviously quite well to certain altitudes and others don't. 
Um, and so we're trying to figure out right now, kind of like, what is the best preparation? Um, when we went into Seyfeld, or excuse me, into the Oberstdorf World Championships, we came from a Davos camp. Um, and the thinking there was some moderate altitude living for several weeks prior to a course that we knew had a monster climb in it um, on that Oberstdorf course. We're always trying to analyze basically, you know, was that, was that a successful strategy or not? It's a, always a little bit hard to tell because there's so many factors that go into endurance performance as you, as you well know. Um, so we're still trying to kind of figure that out. We're still working on actually where our camp will be prior to the Planitza World Championships and how exactly we're gonna prepare for that. We actually have several, several weeks now of no World Cup immediately prior to Planitza. So we have a nice block of time that we can actually use for, use for preparation. So we're trying to find right now the right combination of track access, altitude, um, quality of track, quality of living, quality of food, um, family style living is, if possible for the team, because that's so important with a team that spends the whole year on the road to get out of hotel rooms when possible. But anyway, those are a few things at the same time too. I think like, you know, we've lost some ground in technique over the last two years. Um, we've lost a lot of on snow time. We've lost a lot of camp time. And I'd say us athletes are often athletes that are at the races with high levels of fitness, but maybe not the highest level of technique. And so we have some, we have some work to do there in particular over the next quad. And when is the, when does the FIS calendar get finalized? That has not it is final, yet, yeah, right? it, it, it is it, finalized. Okay. Well, the cross country committee finalized it, but it's not finalized, finalized until the FIS council approves it, okay. um, which I am trying to remember actually when that meeting is, if it's in the next several weeks, typically it's a week okay. or two after the, the, the FIS spring meetings. Um, so I would imagine that happens soon. Um, but the, but the, the most recent draft is actually up on the, on the FIS website right now with equal okay. distances. Um, and taking a look at the, the 2022-23 um, ski team roster, um, one question I had is I, I, uh, I believe that the, the Davis uh, funding structure mm -hmm. went through 2022. Yep. Um, can you just give an update on that in terms of um, what's next for the program and, and how it's sitting in terms of, um, yeah, just that, that funding structure and, and support? Yeah, that was a that was an amazing amazing three years of support, um, specifically from the Davis Family Foundation. Really incredible gift for our program. It really, you know, I mean, it was budget relieving. So it, it was the kind of thing that it didn't increase our budget necessarily, um, but it meant that our ski and ski and snowboard foundation didn't have to raise that money for cross country every year specifically, and could and could try to fund other parts of the organization. Um, and, uh, it also meant that when there were downturns, um, and challenges to the budget over those three years, that cross country was basically immune from having some sort of budget cut, maybe due to COVID costs or anything, or, you know, the economy or anything else during that period. So it was really just an amazing, amazing gift. Um, that has, it, that has ended. We are fully supported by us ski and snowboard, um, for our budget right now. Um, which is which is fairly static, a slight increase, but fairly static from from the previous season. Um, so we we're going forward, and and we have 
we have um, the tools that we need, but of course there's always things we, we still want to add when possible. <laughs> um, and taking a look at, at that roster, I, you know, I think um, for the most part, it, it seems like it was pretty pr predictable in terms of um, a lot of objective selections. Um, can you talk through, like, are there, were there any, um, like I'm was Zach Ketterson maybe was discretionary selection or I could be wrong about that or just talk through that process a little bit and um and just what you're what you're seeing in terms of that roster. Yeah, so there's yeah, there's 22 athletes um that have been nominated to the team. 20 of them made the objective standard in our published criteria, and two of them were named on on discretion. And those two are Zach Ketterson and Kevin Bolger. Um and those discretionary calls are always extremely tough because whenever we get into discretionary selections, um, it's incredibly hard to draw the line of what qualifies as um, a result that is worthy of nomination and what doesn't. And there's always going to be somebody who's on the outside or multiple people who are just on the outside of that. And that's extremely painful. So we, we don't, we take the discretionary selections very, very seriously and often with days of actual discussion. And this, and this was uh, no exception to that. However, we did, we did feel that, you know, Kevin's 12th place in particular in Lillehammer against the Norwegian nations group um, was worthy of a nomination, especially given the fact that he had COVID at the end of the year and wrestled with illness during period one um, as well. Um, and also for Zach with his limited experience to have a top 15 world cup result followed by a win the following day, um, in a relay, we felt like it would be unfair and send the wrong message to the community had those athletes not been nominated, uh, to the team. So, yep, we ended up with 22 athletes and a lot of men, surprisingly this year. Yeah. And I wanted to ask about that too. I re-listened to a conversation you had, I think roughly a year ago on the cross country skier podcast. Um, and you were talking a little bit about just kind of the, the ebb and flow that naturally happens between the strength and depth of the men's field and the women's fields, not just in the U S but kind of internationally as well. And I know in, in thinking about the men's team specifically, so for this roster, there's, there's 14 men total, if I counted correctly, um, on that roster. So and in a really, really large representation on the D team um, with some new athletes making the D team this year, which is super exciting to see. And uh, I think in, in looking at just this past Olympic cycle, I know one of the one of the big challenges in terms of selection this year was the size of the men's quota, right? And how many men um, you could take to the games. Yep. Uh, smaller quotas than we saw four years ago anyway for both men and women. But um, in particular, it was, I think, probably pretty challenging to make some of those decisions um, or, or to, you know, just be faced with, with how small the, the men's team could have been. Um, and luckily we did get that one extra spot from the relegation, but because those, you know, the, the size of those quotas is somewhat reflective of your, or it is reflective of your um, world cup rank is my understanding and international rank. Like, are there, their goals in terms of, kind of bringing the men's, um, you know, or, or that ebb and flow, making sure that we're, we're kind of working towards being able to have a larger quota in the next Olympic cycle. 
or just what are you seeing in terms of the, you know, the, the strength of that roster this year and, and what that means long-term for the program? Yeah, there's definitely a few questions, a few, few things to unpack there. Um, <clears throat> one is you're right. Like we, we just let the selection criteria do its work. And sometimes that's going to be more women. And it certainly has been the case for a number of years. And sometimes it's going to be more men. And right now, I think what we're seeing on the, with the selection criteria is that this ultra talented group of young men that famously won silver gold, gold and three world junior relays in a row is actually moving on to the A and B team in particular. Um, and they're backed up by a group of young men that just won bronze at the world juniors in, in, in that relay too. Um, so we've had this kind of this boost in, in the strength of the, of the men, both on the sprint and the distance side that's coming. We've known it's coming and it's finally arriving into the team structure, which is absolutely fantastic to see. Um, and so like, as we go forward, I know that there will be times when there, we have a lot more women on the team, um, than we have men. And that's just the way it goes. And when, when athletes emerge, no matter what the depth is, we want to be able to, we want to be able to support them. Um, yeah, the Olympic selection um, or the Olympic quotas was heartbreaking for sure in this new formula that we had for the first time at this Olympics um, to only have five men originally and then to in the reallocation to pick up one more and only have six was really, disapp really disappointing um, for us as a nation. We wanted all of us on the staff, all of us, every athlete that was there was hoping we could have more distance men in particular at the games and be able to <clears throat> finish or field those, you know, or uh, fill out those, those starts um, on the distance side and also feel like more competitive relay team, for example. Um, we'll get there. It's going to take a few years. Um, the way that that um, selection works is it's not purely on um, Nations Cup. Um, Nations Cup <clears throat> is actually, it looks very similar to Nations Cup but it is actually a different process. Um, so the way the Olympic quota works is it takes into account the previous year's performance of a nation per gender, um, not only in terms of World Cup performance, but also World Championship performance, World Junior Championship performance, and World U23 Championship performance. Um, of course, when it comes to World Cup, that's where most of the races are that can count into that calculus. So yes, World Cup is really important there. But that said, in the year prior to the games, which was a pandemic year, um, the first pandemic year prior to everyone actually getting vaccinated, we raced everything. We did everything that we could to improve our quota. Um, we were at every World Cup that wasn't canceled. Um, we were at the World Championships with a full team, and we were at World Juniors and U23s with a full team. So the fact that we got the smaller quota on the men's side is reflective of the fact that we are really right now, or at least in the last several years, the ninth best men's team in the world. There's no getting around that. Um, part of the reason that that happened was that we have a bunch of younger athletes coming in and, and starting to replace an older guard of athletes. And those younger athletes are at the point where they're just gaining experience and they're not scoring a lot of World Cup points yet. I expect that three years from now, those same athletes are going to be scoring quite a few points on World Cup and also scoring quite a few points at the World Championships. And so I think we will have a better men's quota when we get to the, get to the next games. Um, so it's not necessarily a strategy. 
it's just the way that it, it's just the way that goes. We're doing the absolute best we can. We're filling, filling all these world cup starts with the best athletes we have, but a lot of them aren't scoring any points. So we're not going to get any benefit from that for a little bit. When we get to the point where we have an incredible, when we have the kind of depth on the men's side that we have on the women's side, we're going to get a full quota. And, um, I had had the chance to sit in on um, some of the presentations during U.S. Ski and Snowboard Congress um, a week or two ago now. And one of the things that you mentioned in your presentation was that, you know, the, this process is maybe the most democratic process on the World Cup um, in terms of selection. And can you just explain, um, explain that and explain why that's important and maybe reflective of kind of the American system? Yeah, specifically that comment was about World Cup selection um, because we have, <clears throat> as I was describing during the meeting, and I think most people that are involved in this process knows that we have a working group. Uh, well, first of all, I'll back up and say, we have a number of athletes that are objectively qualifying for World Cup. Super tour leaders for every period qualify for World Cup. And then those athletes that are ranked in the top 30 or top 30 for women in sprinter distance or top 40 for men in sprinter distance, those athletes are automatically getting an objective start in the next World Cup period. So the majority of our selections are, are actually objectively selected, which is actually not the way that a lot of nations do it. A lot of nations use 100% coaches discretion for selecting athletes to given, to given, given races. And they try to match altitude skiers versus non-altitude skiers and classic skiers versus skate skiers. And, you know, the, the certain characteristics of a course, perhaps to an athlete's ability. Um, so most of our selection is objective. Then we have this working group of 15 people, including um, some of us US key team staff, most of the senior club coaches, several athlete reps, a few kind of at large coaches. Um, and the working group selects the discretionary, available discretionary start spots. Um, then after that working group selects them, those, those athletes, the, the nominations are then sent to a discretionary review committee of three, of three people to, to review it. So my comment about it being the most democratic process probably in the world, and I, I guess I would be interested to see if there's actually one that's more democratic out there, is that we either have 17 or 18 people that are involved with selecting our discretionary picks to World Cup. And um, in most nations, that would just be a small coaching staff picking a few athletes, um, a small national team staff picking a few athletes and sending them on. But we have this very elaborate process, um, which is slow. Uh, the challenge with it is it actually takes time to do that. And this is a selection that we actually have to do up to five times a year and sometimes rather quickly, um, say sometimes at the end of U.S. national championships for races that are starting five days later, for example. Um, and it's a little bit of an onerous process, but it does, the plus side is it's got a ton of community involvement and buy-in into it. So it's a, it's a, good, it's a good process. Um, and at the end of the day, we would probably select about the same athletes in either process. I don't think it moves the needle that much to do it this way, but at least it has kind of this uh, more transparent appearance to the community and it makes people feel like they've got a voice in the process. Looking at kind of um, just as, you know, as we're seeing some of the, the, the ebb and flow, right, of, of the strength of the programs and as 
we have these more and more successful um, junior athletes, you know, setting, you know, getting medals at, at World Juniors and more and more, I think, um, kind of density in that, that group that's moving up. Um, how does that kind of affect, it, it seems like with, there's got to be kind of a moving target of trying to identify like what are the right, you know, where, where are some of these cutoffs and how do we create these criteria that, you know, capture the right athletes, make sure that we're supporting as many athletes as we can, but also, you know, there's, there's a finite budget, there's finite team sizes and things like that. So what are some of the challenges that, um, that you, as a, you know, as a um, committee or, or as, um, as a leadership team that you, you have navigated over the last, you know, maybe a couple Olympic cycles, as it seems like the program overall has, you know, increased, um, kind of set the bar higher and higher year to year. Yeah, I think that the selection criteria is for the most part, I feel like they've really adapted to where, where we are now. And I think, I feel like we are selecting, selecting the right athletes, um, to championship events and to, and to world cup, frankly. Um, <clears throat> you know, I've, I've now spent a couple decades writing selection criteria and being involved in the discussions and the shaping of those criteria. And I think like what my takeaway from it is that every, as we know, every criteria works really well at the top. You're always going to get the best. You're always going to get the best athletes. That's where criteria excel. I've never found a great criteria that works well at the bottom of the selection. It's impossible. It's impossible to write a criteria that can differentiate between the last two athletes that are selected or the, the, the first alternate and the last athlete selected to the team often. Um, it's just not, in, it's just, it's really, really challenging down there. Um, the Olympic selection process, I think worked quite well. It was a very long process of creating that criteria um, over a year, basically. Um, there were multiple lawyers involved from US Ski and Snowboard and from the USOPC. There was the USOPC and their high performance um, department was very involved in that selection criteria. Um, we sent it out to our community, to the cross country community, to athlete reps to circulate. We captured their feedback and brought some of their feedback back into the criteria. And at the end of the day, when the actual selection, when it was time to make the selection, I think things worked as smoothly as I've ever seen them work around an Olympic selection, which is always a, a very emotionally charged time anyway. Um, so I'm really happy how that worked. We'll continue to kind of look at that as we go forward. Once we get now to the world championship criteria, we can all kind of take a little bit of a deep breath and that we're not limited by these, by these quotas, these participation quotas. Um, the world championships, you can take um, as many as 12 women and 12 men if you wanted to. So a total team size of 24 athletes as opposed to the 14 that we had at the Olympics. So that gives us much greater flexibility. So I think the past two world championship teams for us were 18 person teams. As I recall, I want to say we had 10 men and um, eight women. And that just reflected the fact that we had greater specialization between sprinters and distance skiers on the men's side during those championships. So that gave us flexibility. At the same time, you don't want to bring a bunch of athletes that you know you're not going to start in races. Um, that's not great for them. It's not great for everybody else who's at the championships to be in that situation. 
So you got to find that right mix of like filling every start, making sure the best athlete that's most prepared for each start is in it. Um, and then having some very strong alternates standing by when somebody gets sick, for example, or decides that they're too fatigued to start a particular race. Um, but I anticipate that we'll have a team size that's somewhere around there, somewhere around the 18 person um, size for, for Planitza. Um, I also see like the work that the, the cross country committee is doing with the development selection criteria, world juniors, U23s, U18. Those, those criteria continue to get better and better. Um, the pressures that they're having on them right now of pre-selection with such high quality U23 men in particular in the last year is a great problem to have. I would never complain about that. You have a bunch of U23 guys that are actually scoring World Cup points um, in the top 30 formula for World Cup points, which has just recently changed. Um, so anyway, like those are great problems to have. Seems like we're getting the right athletes. Um, I think we're going in the right direction. There's some things that we need to investigate now with our selection criteria going forward. As of last week, um, as I just alluded to, um, the cross country committee voted to change the world cup point structure from 30 deep to 50 deep for points, reduce the points on the tour to ski overall a little bit, um, and also tighten the, tighten the structure a little bit so that second place on the world cup is worth uh, 95 points rather than 80 points. So we need to actually like analyze some data at this point and see how those potential changes specifically awarding points down to 50 deep might impact our current world championship and world cup selection before we can post them and have a discussion again with the cross country sport committee, uh, the U S ski and snowboard sport committee and, um, and decide if those are, if they're appropriate. And uh, maybe moving over to kind of some of the uh, FIS initiatives and, and um, other changes that are happening this year. So a big one um, that I think uh, maybe came about on a somewhat faster timeline than people maybe anticipated um, is this equal distance racing. Um, and so we're, we're seeing a new structure. There's a lot of, it looks like there will be a lot of 20K races um, for both men and women, which is a new distance for, for both, um, both genders. So um, in terms of just the preparations for this, um, is there anything that's kind of being done, whether that's at the team level with, you know, a case project, anything like that, um, or for staff that, that is going to be different in terms of preparing for this? Um, and then a similar question just for the women's team specifically preparing for a, a 50K, um, which I think is just one 50K at Holman Colon. Um, but that's a, a new distance. Um, for, for women. Yeah. Um, frankly, like those, that decision is so fresh <laughs> becoming, coming from last Wednesday. Um, so what is it? Five days old at this, at this point yeah. that we haven't had a chance to have, to have a lot of discussions about the physiological tactical impacts kind of, of, of these changes. And so that'll be a discussion that we take forward. And of course we want to make sure that the FIS council actually approves or ratifies those decisions before we spend a lot of time actually discussing it. Um, it's you're right. Those changes came really fast. I'm actually shocked at how fast the movement was. Um, sometimes because the FIS is not always known for very fast movement sometimes, um, on things. Um, so that was, that was really impressive, um, how quickly and how completely the change happened and how it was and how it was 
the majority at least supported supported the change, um, at least in the committee and subcommittee structure that I'm in, involved in. Um, I don't see this as being a huge physiological difference actually for either group. The women in particular are had been skiing almost predominantly 10Ks and are still skiing almost predominantly 10Ks. Yes, they will have some more opportunities to ski 20K um, in there. So feeding will become actually a little bit more of a strategy on the women's side. Also, as the men move up from almost exclusively 15Ks to a few more 20Ks, then we'll see feeding needing to be something that's taken into account more there. A lot of our men who have some sort of anaerobic capacity or capabilities and, and enjoy the sprints and the team sprints and some of the shorter relay events are actually somewhat excited to see more 10Ks on the schedule. That's an event that they, that they actually um, are really looking forward to. I think there's a, a certain irony here for everyone who, who argued, including myself for many years, that the collegiate NCAA distances didn't line up super well with what was happening internationally. And now actually they line up for the men absolutely perfectly. Um, so that's, that's somewhat humorous. Um, but to your question on the 50K for women in particular, we do need to discuss that. Um, I don't think from a physiological perspective, there's probably so much difference between a 30K at home and colon and a 50K. The feeding strategy will become paramount. Uh, fueling strategy prior to the race in the week leading up to it. Um, and uh, there'll still be a ski, a ski exchange. So they still got to figure out that, that one like piece of it. Um, and I think the other thing, frankly, that we'll have to kind of figure out are depending on conditions, um, will be heating and cooling of athletes, which is something that, you know, the men are dealing with and the women are dealing with anyway in 30 K, but it becomes even more. So it'll be a little bit of a game of like, how do you keep athletes fueled, hydrated, um, cooled, um, or heated appropriately for the performance. Um, another issue or topic that was on um, the the update that that FIST just released um, from their spring meetings is some of the like a gender equity initiative that I believe um, came through US Ski and Snowboard, and I think you were pretty involved in that, um, which is to help promote more women. Um, specifically as, as techs. Um, mm -hmm. And I know that there's some other gender, gender equity initiatives um, that US Ski and Snowboard has been, been working towards, towards, you know, promoting more women coaches as well. Um, but I'm hoping you can kind of talk about how the, with this, um, you know, with this uh, initiative to kind of support more women or bring more women into um, into the World Cup as, as techs um, on that side of thing, like, can you, um, talk about kind of where that idea came from and um, just what's, what that process was like to kind of bring this to the table with this and um, yeah, how, how, it, how, how it can hopefully benefit um, creating some, some equity there. Yeah, so we have, um, we have a small working group um, that, I'm in, that I'm part of um, as well as Maria Stuber, Haley Swirbel, um, Eileen Carey, John Farah, Matt Whitcomb, um, Ellen Adams from US Ski and Snowboard. Um, I'm probably forgetting somebody, um, but it's a bit of a gender equity working group that we've had for 
maybe a little more than a year, we've been having meetings. The idea for the bib for the bibs for technicians that are specific to women only came from that group. I want to say, I can't remember exactly whose idea was at one point I thought it was mine, but it might not have been mine. <laughs> I'm not quite sure. Um, anyway, we kind of went around and around on how we were going to implement, how we were going to propose that and implement that, or whether it made more sense actually to ask for, um, a certain percentage of all staff that were, um, registered for a certain nation on the world cup had to be of, um, of both genders. The challenge with the staff percentage model is it's really takes a lot of oversight by the organizers, the FIS, the jury to make sure that you register the right way and that you actually bring the people you say you're going to bring and that they're actually the people that are on the course and what happens if somebody gets sick at the last minute and can you then swap somebody else in there? So it was, it was really fraught with it was really fraught with a lot of challenges. I think also there's a tendency to we also we see nations, including ourselves, that are often bringing women in the capacity of PTs, massage therapists, physicians, for example, and not as techs and coaches. And so at the end, our working group settled back on the idea of writing a proposal specific to getting women on course, um, whether that's in a coaching role or in a tech role, but actually skiing. And on the coaching side, <clears throat> there are not many women working on the World Cup, unfortunately. And on the tech side, there's even fewer. And so we really felt like we need to, we need to move the needle immediately on this, pro on this process of getting, of getting more women going there. At the same time, we recognize the challenge that, it, that it's, going to, it's going to benefit the richest nations immediately. Um, a country like Norway, for example, can do that today. Um, they've got the money to bring as many staff up to their quota, you know, their total quota of staff as they want to every weekend. Sweden can do that too, probably. Um, we don't have the money to do that in the United States. Um, and we are the fifth best, you know, ranked nation in the world. Um, and most of the other nations around us don't have that. And the ones that are ranked lower certainly don't have the money to do that. So we realized that we were actually in a way from a strategic competitive way in terms of access to the course, ability to test more product, ability to help athletes test skis. We were actually kind of shooting ourselves in the foot with this proposal a little bit. Um, but at the same time, we decided it doesn't matter. It's worth it. We need to push ourselves to be better. We need to push all these countries to be better. If we don't start now, when are we going to start this process? So we have to get it going. So yes, I submitted a proposal to the FIS. And as it turns out, the FIS staff was already thinking about this, um, which was great. It was great to find out that like they already were thinking about a similar proposal from their side. And they came back and said, yeah, you should continue. You should go ahead and, and put your proposal in because it was already written at that point. But it was cool to see that they were they were trying to think of a similar solution. They recognized the issue as well. Um, and then I was really excited to see that it got universal support. Um, I don't think that there was actually anyone who spoke out against the idea, including all these nations who are going to really struggle financially um, and logistically to figure out how to bring additional staff um, to World Cup. And so it didn't even have to go to a vote. Um, there was so much support. There was no dissent in this discussion. So it actually just passed easily at the subcommittee level and it passed easily at the, um, at the cross-country committee level. 
So that's exciting. Now we just need to, we need to find a little bit more. The idea for us is to bring women, um, develop women, give them those experiences on World Cup, but it's not to necessarily replace one of our, say, World Cup technicians that's been there for five years or six years. We still want that knowledge. We want that experience. We just want to be developing more women simultaneously. Um, so we want to be able to do both. So we need to find a little bit more money in some key places, apply for some grants. Um, Maria Stuber is already helping with some of that. Um, I'm applying for grants or initiatives from U.S. Ski and Snowboard. So we're going to kind of like continue to, to look for opportunities to, to bring more women, um, techs and coaches to World Cup. And is there, are there some plans in place for um, some of that development to happen domestically also in terms of um, getting women in, in some of those roles for some of the bigger events in the U.S.? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, like, you know, Art, kind of backing up a little bit to to part of your question, which was, you know, U.S. Ski, ski and Snowboard's goals for better, for better gender equity in our coaching staffs. Um, that is a huge goal of ours. It's been a big goal in the cross-country side. Our last three hires of coaches um, for cross-country have been women. Um, and those are, um, those have been fantastic hires for our program. Um, and beyond that, what Brian Fish has tried to do on the development side was to create gender parity in basically all of the development projects that he is staffing. And we are already there or move towards gender parity. We're already there in terms of our preparation projects. So Brian, I think last season had complete par gender parity in, um, REG, NEG, NTG, U16 structure will continue to do so on like international in Norwegian junior trip, um, U18 trip, that sort of places. So that's been a goal that's already been achieved. We'll continue to do that. Um, that's been well received. We're not quite there yet on the competition development projects, World Juniors, U23s. I believe U18 has been, so U18 trip has actually been all female coached um, at times. Um, we're not quite there on world juniors, U 23s, and that's because we're gradually trying to improve, um, the know-how of some of the, um, some of the staff that's coming over and don't want to completely get rid of, um, all the techs that have been there for quite a few years and actually have a ton of experience. Um, at that level, we have to make sure we obviously have extremely competitive skis. So we're gradually moving towards, um, better gender equity at, uh, at that particular competition, but we're getting close, getting close there. And then the next task is how to do it at, uh, at the world cup Olympic world championship level. Um, last kind of big picture question I have for you is, um, if you can give any kind of update on, you know, a Minneapolis world cup in, in 2024 and, um, one of the, I think this might've been in Matt Whitcomb's presentation during Congress, but um, one of the things that was discussed was this idea of creating home field advantage. Um, and, you know, we, we have a world junior championship coming up this year in Whistler and yeah, bringing, bringing a world cup back to, to Minneapolis. And, and just um, if there's any updates that you can share in that realm and, and just why maybe that concept of, of that home field advantage, whether that's in the U S directly or, or North America that just benefits the program. 
Yeah, definitely. Well, those those organizers in both Minneapolis and in Berkey Country are are proceeding with um, with great haste and with a lot of passion, and they're doing they're doing a ton of work, and they really expect to be on the calendar in 2024. Um, the FIS is very supportive of it. It's going to be it should be a great 2024 tour between Canmore and then the two. U.S. venues. Canmore is looking at four races. I think Minneapolis would be two races, and then up at the Berkey, we'd have a sprint plus the plus the 50k for for women and men. Um, so it should be like a really attractive um, period of World Cup racing with eight races in North America, plenty of distance races, plenty of sprints. It should attract kind of all the best athletes. The FIS and all the other nations are extremely supportive of it. They recognize that if we want to be a true world cup, it can't just be a European world cup and that we need to get out of, out of Europe and get, get to places like North America as often as possible. Um, I will say that both organizers have a big financial challenge in front of them. Um, cross country, as everyone knows, is a, um, not the most popular sport on TV in the United States of America. And so selling the advertising for cross country televised cross country is a huge, a huge challenge. So they've still got some work to do. Um, we're trying to figure out how we can support it best from the US ski and snowboard side of things, um, but it's not a done deal yet. I think we will know by this fall, by the fall fist meetings, whether it is a done deal um, at that time, but everyone is pushing forward with like passion and, and good faith. Um, the question of a home field advantage at World Cup, that's that's a good point. Um, I don't know if our World Cup group from the USA gets much advantage. We're basically a European team <laughs> for all practical purposes. All of our infrastructure, including our wax truck, are in Europe, and then we spend the whole season in Europe. Um, so we have the same travel challenges that anybody else has coming over the Atlantic Ocean. We have the same equipment and logistic challenges that anyone has um, having to bring all of our gear or most of our gear back. No 220 irons, but those we can have to scrounge up some tables and some 110 irons from, from this side. Um, but, you know, those World Cups are always a very important when we can have one. It's an important eye-opener and stepping stone for a lot of young athletes who normally wouldn't get a World Cup start because we obviously do have increased nations group starts in those World Cups. Um, although that number has been actually reduced a little bit over the years. It used to be you get 15 men and 15 women as many as 15 and 15 is for a total of 30. Um, and that I believe is 20 now, actually, as of several years ago. So it's not as big of an advantage as it, as it used to be, but it's always great to be back at home in front of, in front of fans. And we've got a lot of people that have raced the Berkey before and they know how to race the Berkey and they know, and they know uh, when the big climb at, at uh, you know, halfway through is coming up and they know when, when to put on their sprint and all that sort of thing. And that's, so there's a little bit of competitive advantages to, uh, to racing, especially an event like the Berkey at home. I think I, I took it almost as, you know, just the way that it might invigorate the, the community too, as a whole, um, being able to have something like that, where, you know, American fans can maybe go to Minneapolis a little bit easier than we can travel to Europe and, um, and just what that kind of does as, as you trickle down to, you know, just at the community level, at the youth level, and 
Um, I guess that was, that was when I was thinking home field advantage with some of this, like bringing more races closer to home, that was as much as any other, you know, competitive advantage, I guess that was more what I was thinking of. Yeah. You really, yeah. You really always hope like you capture the imagination of like one young person who tends, you know, turns out to be like a superstar in the sport. I mean, famously, you know, Ted Ligeti grew up in Park City and and got to watch those World Cups when they were in Park City as a kid. And I believe got to watch the, tw- the 2002 Winter Olympics in Park City and was inspired and went on to be one of the best, you know, best alpine skiers in the world for many years and to win a lot of medals along the way. And so you really hope that you capture, you capture the imagination and the passion and uh, excitement of a few young athletes like that as well. So yeah, fingers crossed on that. Um, last question I have for you is, is, uh, more, I guess, outside the, the, you know, USD team leadership perspective, but, um, I know that you are a, a parent of a junior athlete. Um, and I'm kind of curious how, you know, over your, your time as the coach, um, how seeing your own child go, you know, go through the development system, whether that's kind of influenced anything in your own you know, your own thoughts about coaching or your coaching philosophy or, or kind of your thoughts on the, the U.S. development system. Yeah, absolutely. Um, first of all, I'd say as a parent and a coach, it always reinforces the lesson that um, I, sh- I can't give any training advice to my own kids. <laughs> <laughs> Although I always slip some in there. For sure, <laughs> but I really try to I really try to stick to keep a little bit of professional distance in that in that particular c- scenario because as having been a coach, I know actually how important that is <laughs> to have a little bit of professional separation um, and, uh, right at that particular point. Um, you know, we're really lucky in that both of like my kids came up through the Sun Valley Ski Team, which is an incredible club system, super well established, well led, very professional. A ton of resources um, for this club, and so we're really lucky that you know both kids actually had this incredible experience with cross country skiing coming coming up uh, through their through their you know uh, elementary school, middle school, high school years, um, and that's been that's been really fun to watch their development. Um, the one thing I'd say I'm always like reminded of watching my own children is how much further ahead we are as a nation in terms of what happens at the club level than we were um, 20 years ago when I started working for the national team and certainly um, 40 years ago um, or 35 years ago when I was that age myself. Um, My daughter, who's graduating high school right now, um, trains more as a junior, trained more as a junior in high school than I did when I was a junior in college. And that's because the, the, the knowledge, um, of the coaches of the community, um, in terms of what is necessary for preparation and success is so much better than it was when, when I was that age. Um, the, these kids are skiing technically better than we all did when we were, when we were that age. They, they know more about technique. They know more about training physiology. Um, they know about much more about training hard and recovery. So many topics, so many things that I really did not understand at that age. And when I was that age, there wasn't really a club structure in the U.S. There was high school skiing. And that was about it. And there were a few clubs in a few places that were pretty small. 
but our club structure has really grown, strengthened, diversified. Um, and so we are seeing, as we know, much better pre prepared athletes um, at, you know, as they're coming out of high school and entering college and much better prepared collegiate athletes coming out of college and um, trans, you know, transitioning on to super tour or world cup racing. Um, and we see it reflected everywhere. I mean, as famously, we had zero medals at world junior championships prior to 2017. And since then we've had a, a bunch of medals um, at that championship. And it's because these young athletes are so much better prepared and they're actually preparing at the same level as the, as their best competitors across the world. So it's really exciting. We're doing such great work as a nation at every, at every level. And, um, you know, I'm quite confident that when I see the work that the club coaches are doing across the country, that this success is going to continue for the U S because we have talent there, these coaches recognize it, and then they are preparing the talent with, um, a lot of know-how, a lot of experience and a lot of know-how, um, and a lot of passion, a lot of passion to actually, to actually want to really compete at the highest level right away. So it's a, it's an exciting time. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. A lot of uh, good insights across the board. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy the content you consume on Faster Skier, we encourage you to consider supporting us with a voluntary subscription with price set at your own discretion. Learn more at fasterskier.com support. You can also rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast or share it with a friend or ski buddy who might also enjoy it.